0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In her National Book Award-winning debut collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus, poet Robin Costa Lewis both narrates and investigates the experience of black women across time and geography. To create the section that gave the book its title, Lewis first conducted countless hours of research in museums and compiled the titles and descriptions of works of art and craft, dated between 38,000 BCE and the present, that featured the images of black women. She then rearranged the titles to create what is at once an elegy for the black women in these artworks and an indictment of the violence done in the writing of Western art history. For the keynote lecture of the John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art, American Communities Then and Now, held on February 8, 2019, Lewis read the epilogue to a new edition of Voyage of the Sable Venus, discussing the ways her project blends poetry, art history, and autobiography.
1: Thank you for having me. I am so honored to be here with you all. As you know, I traffic in metaphor. um, If I engage any economy at all, it is the economy of symbols and linguistic ones at that. So when I was invited to be with you all today, I was and remain deeply moved, deeply honored, not only because it is the, the invite came from the National Gallery of Art and for this incredible conference, But really, the reason why I was most honored, I'm sorry, NGA, I'm sorry the conference, is because I get to be with all of you, you whose contributions and legacies I have studied and followed for many decades. I'm truly humbled to stand here before all of you. I feel like I should be in the audience, and I will be all day listening to you. I can't tell you what your work has meant to me. So thank you for having me. Um, I was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. I got in around, I don't know, midnight. And I was thinking about today, and I was thinking, what can I say to kind of explain my work for people who don't know Voyage? And I was like, it's kind of like the poetry version of the Da Vinci Code, the book. Right? (laughs) I love the Da Vinci Code. I'm not supposed to, I know. But I think uh, I, I went to the, the Divinity School at Harvard for one of my graduate degrees. And what was tremendous about that is you got to meet all of these extraordinary feminist theologians, right, who had been working for, in that case, decades, but preceding them a tradition uh, of centuries trying to reconstruct the history of Christianity to have a more inclusive, I'm being generous, inclusive <laughs> historiography. Right? And so what the Da Vinci Code did was compress all of that extraordinary work by scholars into a page turner, shoot him up, bang, go find the guy, right? And and then slyly, Brown snuck in the history of feminist theology, right? I think about Voyage that way. I'm not trying to belittle myself or anything like that, but I'm trying to tell you what your work means to me. I'm being very gushing, and then I'll go on with the lecture. But I'm really trying to say thank you, truly, for the work that you all have done. It it means so much to me and the world. So thank you for your contributions. This is boarding the Voyage. I know, and it begins with the epigraph by Rainer Maria Rilke. This is Rilke. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. All becoming has needed me. My looking ripings things, and they come toward me to meet and to be met. Boarding the voyage. By the end of it, I was on my knees. I'd enter a museum, drop to the ground, and ignore the art completely. I had learned the art itself had taught me. Art made me kneel. It was my last day in the museum. A new exhibit had just opened, an exhibit of American colonial furniture. I was there to research an Egyptian temple, but ran quickly upstairs to see this new exhibit. I knew what to do now. I didn't look at the image. There was no need. Instead, I walked into the gallery, dropped to the ground, and crawled along the floor. Why would anyone desire to carve the foot of a black woman at the end of a table leg? Why would anyone find it pleasurable to sit upon a chair whose legs, instead of a simple, elegant form of smoothed wood ornamented with dahlias, or peonies, say, had been sculpted into the shape of four miniature black women, their hands extended high above their heads, four miniature black female chair legs to hold up the sitter? Which kind of sensation did that create to place the backside of one's body down upon a seat, supported by the eight wooden brown female hands. Excuse me. A small black female carved into the handle of a tool, miniature black women who could fit into your palm, a three inch long black female carved into a knife handle so you could hold onto her body tightly whenever you sliced your daily bread. A palm-sized black woman in your hand when you brushed your hair at night, looking absently into the mirror. A spoon handle, a drum, a hammer, a flute, black bodies sculpted into the wooden frame surrounding a heroic painting of a white male on top of a white horse riding triumphantly into war. Black female bodies ornamenting the tripods, the base of a table sleeping inside the frame, selling, offering, tending in the background of innumerable paintings, bending, standing, waiting, ever a neck, or hand, or bending face tilting from behind a column, over a shoulder, from the margin, bringing the horses, carrying the hats, carrying the master's sword, his helmet, pulling his curtain back, holding a map, holding a glass filled with cool water, offering a bouquet of flowers. And all of the countless European stone fountains supported by submerged black torsos holding up all of the world's water our whole artistic history, crawling with the decorative bodies of black women. In Italy, in Florence, hangs the birth of Venus, perhaps one of the world's most celebrated paintings. The goddess Venus stands naked inside a tremendous scallop shell, gliding along the waters, riding the shell like a vessel. It is her birth, but instead of coming to us as an infant, she arrives as an adult woman. Fully formed, skin whiter than marble, golden tresses gathered together in one hand like endless blades of curling sea grass. Instead of her pointing to her breasts, she places her other white hand delicately over her heart. She is attended by two gorgeous gods, a redhead and a bronze-colored brunette. They blow her shell toward shore. Pink flowers with lush red centers fall from the sky like morning rain. As they hover above Venus's shoulder, the wider god wraps his arms and thighs around the darker one, as if not to fall from the sky. In the background, there is an outline of a shore. In the foreground, another female figure, also white, but this time with darker hair, this time fully dressed, awaits Venus's arrival. She holds open a brocade floral tapestry with which she gestures to cover the goddess's nakedness. The wind bellows inside of everyone's garments, creating the sensation of motion. And hence, perhaps more than all of the above, Botticelli's painting of Venus is actually time's portrait too. Time stands captured, static, a statue. When I was a child looking upon this Venus, I would think that predictable thought. I want to stand inside a giant shell. I want red flowers to fall from the mouths of clinging angels. I want to hover in the heavens, too. But what I didn't know was that the original models used for earlier paintings of Venus were Alexander the Great's mistress Campospe, as well as an ancient Greek courtesan named Firni, I know it's just ancient gossip. I know you know better than I. But apparently, Fearney was so rich that after Alexander the Great destroyed the walls of Thebes, she vowed she would rebuild every brick, but upon one condition that an inscription be engraved upon the new wall's face for everyone to see. Quote, destroyed by Alexander, restored by Fearney, comma, the courtesan, end quote. It's a fantastic story. But what a lush world our psyches might have become had we known the goddess Venus, the ultimate emblem of female beauty in the Western world, was originally modeled after a mistress and a whore. One day, a banal day of phone calls, cleaning, walking, fetching a child from the playground, watching that child go down the slide as you stand there wondering, how many more years will I be standing here at the foot of a slide, watching life glide down? You turn the page of a book, and there it is, an engraving, Voyage of the Sable Venus. Here, the goddess is not white as marble. Instead, she is celestial black. And not only that, but she is standing where she has never stood before throughout thousands of years of Western art, right in the middle of the canvas, right in the middle of the paper. She is not just a torso or head or scrap of a face. She is not holding a serving tray or selling fruit, or hanging from a rope. Like her sister in Italy, she is poised atop a seashell, a black goddess gliding along the waves of a primordial ocean, balancing inside a giant scallop shell. In other words, the beginning of the world. The strapping and cut boy gods, may I have some water please, someone? The strapping and cut boy gods, I'm sorry, And Botticelli's painting have been replaced, however. And here she is attended by white cherubs, most of whom fan the sable Venus with long, white ostrich plumes. We could talk about the history of white ostrich plumes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, duh. (laughs) There's a payload down there. Thank you, Terrence. I'm so sorry. Um, We could talk about the history of white ostrich plumes in South Africa later. A few carry the feathers of a peacock. Cupid above takes aim at Triton below. Triton glides through the waters, navigating her shell. Oddly, he does not carry his usual trident, but rather holds a flag, a flag of the Union Jack. Botticelli's definite horizon is muddled here. Where is the land? Indeed, where will they land? They are all riding across the middle of an ocean, shepherding the sable Venus to some as yet unclaimed place. Perhaps her body will be used, then, as a land claim, a territorial marker, a stake, a fleur-de-lis. Instead of pointing to her breast like the Virgin, or covering her breast or heart like Botticelli's Venus, the sable Venus has a pair of reins threaded through both of her hands. The reins are harnessed to two dolphins, dolphins that pull her chariot shell through the sea. Unlike Botticelli's pure and naked Venus, the sable Venus wears only one article of clothing, a pair of what can only be called colonial panties. And, uh, <laughs> Oh my God. And unlike Botticelli's Venus, unlike Botticelli's Venus, the sable Venus is strong, curved, muscular, a woman's woman. Her form is twice as wide, her muscles cut and lean. She is the embodiment of strength, no fragile anything in need of anyone. Her dark skin is adorned with jewels. All eyes are upon her and at her service, finally. At the time when she was first rendered as an engraving by Thomas Strothard in the late 18th century, and later painted in 1801, and still today, the Voyage of the Sable Venus could be considered a visual travesty, an inversion of order. How, at the height of slavery, could a black woman be drawn by dolphins through the primordial seas, adored and attended by gods and the angels of classical Greece, goes the purest response, meaning the gods would never be seen in the company of a black female body. Rightly so, not to mention serve as her attendants. Others, recognizing immediately the atrocious irony, still question whether the painting was a satire. For in the 18th century, her scallop shell could only be a metaphorical slave ship. Did the sable Venus enjoy her trip across the Atlantic, guided by a white male celestial harem gliding along the middle passage destined for slavery? Besides these obvious observations that the world was on fire then, indeed, that it has been burning for millennia, and not only that, but that the majority of our population seems to be enjoying the blaze, You begin to feel a third question about the image rising in your throat, a subtler question about words. That is, you begin to wonder if you had ever seen the words sable and Venus in the same sentence at any point in time, in any language, anywhere in print. Just think of it, a word as exhausted and under investigated as Venus. Had you really never seen it occur intimately with something dark and adjectival? Of course, the answer is tragically no. But there was something else at play, something not so predictable or boring as hate, something hid beneath the floorboards of your question, eyes peered up at you through the cracks in the question's floor. Perhaps for all of these centuries, for all of these thousands upon thousands of years, the true reason no one had ever seen Sable and Venus in the same room together at the same time is quite simply that they are the same person. The goddess Venus, a double agent with two code names, one darkness, the other beauty. When I was a child in the first grade, I began making female statues from mud. I don't know why. Mud, clay, strings. I dressed the statues in repeating rows of red, papery bougainvillea pillows, ornamenting each seam with bright gold pistons I'd plucked from the center of our neighbor's fuchsias, sometimes adding a violet crown with pistols from the head of the birds of paradise that stood erect, guarding our front door. I would play a game. I would write a very short note that said only, love then leave the note with the wet and ruddy statues anonymously at the front doors of the old ladies in our neighborhood. Ding, dong, ditch. Ring the bell and run. Of love's mysterious arrival, the poet Rita Dove wrote that the occurrence is, quote, massive, inconvenient, undeniable, end quote. How like love, art can be. A painting can have me at hello. I have gone out on dates with certain sculpture. I can court a photograph for lifetimes waiting for her to marry me. But art seduction needn't be dramatic. In fact, sometimes it is as quiet as a drop of sweat silently tracing the downy downy line of hair down your back. Like love, we barely notice certain aspects of art until hours later when we wake with our clothes drenched. At other times, art takes us by the throat. It bends us, and we like it. Finally, something capable has claimed us, tamed us. If the art is good, it forces us to stay. Exceptional art, like exceptional love, forces us to cry out for mercy, which is to say I fell in love with the sable Venus at first sight. It wasn't merely the iconicity that grabbed me by the neck, nor was it that deeply satisfying delight in seeing the white Venus replaced by the black, as delicious as that is, and it is. That gesture was too undemanding of myself, of history, which is to say, ever since Rome we keep replacing the statues, but continue playing the same in my appending, opinion, opinion-blinding games. "Hey, I have an idea. Let's down one. Let's take down one monument and replace it with another. That will fix our problems. But what if the real neurosis stems from our desire for monuments of any kind? Perhaps instead of looking up for an icon, we can look down and cherish and adore, even worship the people working quite, quietly right beside us, or even more subtly working via memory right within us. Real beauty isn't tit for tat, as fun and even justified as revenge can be. So The Voyage of the Sable Venus for me was more than a visual slight a, and a historical hand. That something more was the title. The Voyage of the Sable Venus was an epic written in one line. Frost medalist Marilyn Nelson once remarked that if one has the ear and takes the time, even the front page of the newspaper is laden with sonnets. The back of a cereal box contains songs. Language is an organ, as in a bodily organ, a musical instrument, which means that even when having an argument, we are singing. The title, The Voyage of the Sable Venus, contained the story of all our histories. Could it be, I wondered, than instead of the intellectual, intellectual propaganda we call art history, the more honest, simple, and accurate narrative of art, of perception, of projection, in short, the development of our visual subconscious, was hiding right there in plain view. Not, however, in the imagery, but simply in what the image is called, within the signs, within the words. Whenever I walked inside a museum had I missed the obvious treasure because I had been seduced into looking at the paintings. Inside the title of any work of art, armies stand. Horses, cannons, five-masted ships anchored in the harbor. The general watching death dance from on board. How had I missed it? Is it possible that titles can contain more art or as much art as the image itself, even titles like anonymous and untitled? Perhaps silence is the greatest epic of all. Or as one of my favorite and most astute cultural critics, Richard Pryor, once asked, are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? I had to see. I needed to see how I had been taught to see. I decided to go back. I decided to start my life over. If we considered an art title the true portrait or the hidden image, what will we see? If we refused to look at the painting sometimes, could we perceive more of the art? Which story, which music would emerge? If darkness and beauty were the same agent, had she hid in other titles too? If we went back, if we went all over the world and looked at every object, every statue, every painting that included a black female figure in any way and wrote every title down, what would art's epic sing then? What recitations, repetitions, recollections, suites, what alliteration, rants, odes, meta anaphora, which fixed and unfixed forms? Is language really a textual code or a visual one? Or is it both? Could a title perform like a painting? Is this a possible answer to that eternal, unanswerable question, what is a poem? And that question's hidden twin, what is an image? I never thought I would find more than just a few titles. I never thought I would travel through time. But after I began to write each title down, what began as a small experiment spanned into the history of art in the entire Western world. The museums were invisible graveyards. They were just sitting there, broken, defaced, unseen, a catalog of bodies. It was an invisible archaeology an archaeology that crisscrossed time and space. Everywhere I went, I found them just off, just to the edge, just beneath. Pieces of black female bodies buried in plain sight. We were everywhere. Over the years, my project stopped being research, and I began to feel that although I lived in New York and although I was a mother with a three-year-old son, carrying four bags of groceries while hauling him and his stroller up four flights of stairs, mashing him bananas and avocados during the day, there remained, nevertheless, a vast part of me that was leaving to serve on board a great ship only I could see. It just happened one evening as my son slept in his room, a head start neophyte, overjoyed with new toddler high society. It felt to me as if a vast and ancient ship birthed itself in the middle of our block right outside my window in the East Village on 9th Street. Long before hurricane sanity would wash into our lives, flooding our building with nine feet of water, that is, a year before someone's white leather sofa went floating down our street at 2 o'clock in the morning, I had already seen our block transformed into an ocean, and that ocean held a curious vessel that I knew had come only for me. The captain of the ship was the sable Venus herself, and she gently demanded that I get on board. More than a boat swaying, but always honored to be in her service, I understood my job was no longer academic, but something more open, more Catholic, in the truest sense of that word. Why me, I wondered. Sometimes I thought it was because I was the one who had the most arms, the only one whose legs still worked. Unlike the Sable Venus, I could actually step ashore, walk undetected inside museum doors, and begin the long catalog of our beloved missing, our cherished disappeared. Sometimes I understood I was allowed on board because for me, this was the most exquisite and most perfect place in all of history to be. Voyaging through time and place, our ship a nautical temple, a haven from a war fought not over any geographical territory, but the greatest ideological territory of all, beauty. It was as as if when I said I had to start my life over, the sable Venus had heard me, and she had come. The first days when we were alone, just Sable Venus and me, she would dock our ship and I would get off in ancient Greece, say, or I'd get off in Colonial Williamsburg. In each port, I'd go on shore and begin searching in museums, libraries, archives, courthouses, Black female figures were everywhere. That was the first shock as far back as 38,000 years, as far away as any port, any continent, in any artistic medium ever practiced. Quite possibly the black female figure was as old as pigment itself. In my real life, i take my son to museums several times a week. I spent my first Mother's Day with him strapped to my back at a Kara Walker retrospective. He was just a few weeks old at the time, and the black and white silhouettes astounded his new eyes. I took him with me on airplanes, trains, a small ferry across uh, Kenya. Wherever we went, I visited museums. I wrote down every title I could find. After countless exhibitions, countless books, countless archives, I collected tens of thousands of titles. Any art object that contained even a fragment of the black female form, I wrote down. Maritime museums, train museums, weaponry museums, courthouses. History was a sea upon which I grew drunk. My duty was to find them, find each one, bring the broken bodies aboard. I hit the sculpture in my hair. I hit the paintings in the baby stroller. I became a very accomplished international art thief. It was easy. By writing down the titles only, I was able to steal all of the art by leaving it there on the wall. I'd write down the title in my notebook, bring her aboard, wrap her in blankets, clothe and feed her. By the end, the ship was full, a catalogue of dismembered and dead, burnt, broken, chopped half-length, black female torsos, limbs, often standing, unable to sit, without relief, frozen by their arras in a position of eternal servitude. In short, the most capable of all shipmates. There were so many black female bodies aboard. After a while, there was nowhere to walk or sleep. I cooked for them. I hold a figure with half of a face, no arms, no legs to speak of. I'd sit with her. I worked silently so I could eavesdrop on their conversations. The paintings spoke to each other. The sculptor talked too. Often the only body they had was a head peeking out from behind a column. I looked deep into their bodiless eyes. I poured broth inside their mouths. Untitled, 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 untitled. Hundreds of thousands of female figures of every race in the Western art are simply titled Untitled. Double that are named anonymous. You could write the word untitled repeatedly on a piece of paper every day, all day for the next 100 years without stopping, and you would never reach the end of female namelessness. I began to grow wild inside. I felt as if I were on board, always at sea. I'd be sipping tea with a friend But really, I was standing on deck, quietly watching the sharp horizon. Almost every figure was broken in some way. Everyone was dead. But the ship became a party. Brokenness, fragmentation was a given, if not our enduring strength, if not our anthem. What could anyone whole or alive truly know about living? It was an exercise in the redemptive power of silence. The art challenged me to stop speaking. The titles were adamant that our opinions and theories about art were wholly unnecessary. I tried to write about it. I tried to write something else. I tried to write more, to say something about how it feels to be on your knees in a museum with a magnifying glass, to be under suspicion by the museum guards for doing nothing other than looking more closely. I tried to write about the hysterical laughter that would project from my mouth in the middle of the night as I discovered yet another unbelievably heinous art object, so sick the modern mind could never have conceived of it. Each time I tried to write about the art itself, I would find yet another image whose title, shockingly, could say more about human beings in a few words than any, forgive me, art historian, writer, or artist could accomplish in a million pages with a million images. What more was there to say? What can possibly be said? Perhaps the true museum, the honest archive, the the eternal exhibit occurs and reoccurs within our own bodies. Perhaps the gallery is not material but memorial. Like Rothko's Chapel, every image exalted in darkness. Or as Roland Barthes once said, a photograph is always invisible. It is not it that we see. When my son grew too large to carry on my back, I began to travel from my bedroom while he slept. Sometimes, because of the new forms of wireless access, I'd break into my favorite museums by going to an online exhibit. I'd go roller skating through the Met at 2 in the morning. I'd sit at night in the temple of Dindur. I'd eat a bag of barbecue potato chips and offer some to the Mona Lisa. Matisse and I became wild lovers. I, too, timed him with Lorette. But then the ever suave Gordon Park stole me away from her in two moves. Or maybe we were more like a ship of black female pirates, and I was the only one who could pass. I was cursed, you see, I had a whole face. But we used my body's wholeness to our advantage. I could get in. I could get past the guards. And perhaps that is why they chose me, these pirates. I grew my hair long like black seagrass. Friends thought it was because I wanted to be glamorous. But the true reason is I could hide my invisible tools tools and weapons near my long hair, pushing a bourgeois $500 baby stroller. No one suspected me of my true calling, thievery. We went all over time because we were all over time. History was a tunnel or a river or a lane. History was a sky full of stars. History was a rope, a gate, a laboratory run by the deranged. History was a compass. By the end, the ship was full of fragments, a catalog, dismembered, dead, which is to say, again, the most capable of all shipmates. Every day, every hour, there were countless surprises. My eyes changed color, sepia, onyx, tar, tiger's eye. I began to cackle out loud to myself. Western art seemed to hold a long black secret, and I could finally see it. Beauty is not pretty. Beauty and pretty are enemies. Pretty is a yes man dressed in colonial drag passing for a lady. While beauty is a double agent, beauty is a war cry, and her first commandment is to stay well hidden. I no no longer look at beauty straight on. I no longer look where the painter has guided my eyes to gaze. I tilt my head. I turn my body to the left and try to discover her strange existence from my periphery. At some point, I blur my eyes. Or perhaps Voyage is a kind of autobiography, an autobiography without an eye. For as Virginia Woolf once said, eye is only a convenient term for somebody who has no real being. Or voyages in autobiography where the eye isn't significant, isn't the protagonist. Perhaps history is both hero and villain, which is a kind way of saying perhaps history is that lover I both hate and adore. I cannot quit her. I'm going to skip here, because you guys are art historians. This is the part where I talk about the history of the Black Virgin and how pervasive and alive is her cult and always has been. And how, um, when I got to the Christian period, I was so perplexed. I'm embarrassed to say that because I went to divinity school. I was looking, you know, after all the ancient research you do and all the degradation, you don't expect to find uh, the Mother of God uh, to be on a throne and exalted. So that's what this part. This part is that I'm skipping, but for time, just for time's sake, I'm going to move ahead. But that's what I'm skipping, just so you know. We can talk about it maybe in the Q and A. God bless Poland is all I have to say. During the Victorian period, painters discovered a pigment that would help them to paint brown and black bodies more realistically. It was called Indian yellow. The yellow was so rich that it created a more lifelike depth than brown skin. Until that time, no one really knew how to paint black bodies well brown bodies. Our skin appeared strange without depth or contrast. Indian yellow was a visual sensation. It changed completely how brown bodies were rendered. Slowly, over time, the origin of the color color fell under suspicion. Was it really plant-based? What made the yellow so rich? And although guarantees were made that the source was indeed vegetable, it turned out that the Indian yellow was made from the urine of cows, cows in India that were being force-fed a diet of mango leaves only. The cows would, of course, die after two years. There was outrage in England. How could anyone treat a cow so cruelly? Went the questioning. This case spawned the beginning of animal protection organizations in England decades before anyone complained about the slaughter and devastation the British crown was inflicting on India's people. I often think about this. I often think about Thoreau and Walden Pond. I regularly feel as if I'm a pastoral poet trapped inside a post-colonial body. I contemplate all the miraculous flowers, trees, and grasses, animals, and birds, all the exceptional life just throbbing and teeming outside my window. I think about how we would have no vegetables, fruits, or flowers were it not for the great pollinators. Bats, butterflies, bees, hummingbirds, the common housefly. I think about maggots and worms, how holy is the work they perform. But just as I'm about to transcend history entirely, I remember Thoreau, who no matter how hard he tried to find a place of natural peace and beauty, a place where he could escape history, he kept bumping into former slaves and free black people living around Walden Pond which is to say, Western art is our Walden pond. No matter where we go, just as we bend down to admire the red, pulsing veins of a leaf, we bump into history. History is a runaway slave, running, running, trying to find some place to be safe. Besides those routinely murdered on board for sport, is it true that on slave ships in the middle of crossing the Atlantic before ever arriving in the so-called New World, many, many slaves who died en route did not die of anything mythical like flying, as the luscious folktales say, or of anything viral but from something much more insidious and vital like despair or what we now call depression? It was common. There are records. Perhaps despair is a truer kind of flight. Perhaps depression is a brand on the runaway, an honest imbalance presenting in our blood, a certain enduring and rational disappointment in our species. Or as Fred Moten once said brilliantly, I want to consider exhaustion as a mode or form or way of life, which is to say sociality, thereby making a relation whose implications constitute, in my view, a fundamental theory, uh, sorry, fundamental theoretical reason not to believe, as it were, in social death. Like Curtis Mayfield, Moton says, however, I do plan to stay a believer. That is to say, again, like Mayfield, that I plan to stay a black motherfucker. Which is to say, when the voyage ended, I was, of course, the last to know. I am convinced every figure on board knew our time was ending, but each agreed to conceal that fact from me. Again, perhaps I was enjoying being with the dead too much. Perhaps I was enjoying being dead too much. Perhaps while documenting their sliver testimonies about how they came to be a dot of a woman standing off to the side of a canvas or a table leg or a fragment, I myself was turning into a statue. Perhaps in my postmodern self-righteousness, I had missed the point completely and believed their brokenness was the subject when what became most clear after sailing for several millennia, was at their armlessness, their facelessness, was not the problem at all. The problem was the notion that they were not alive, that they did not exist, that they were not right there in the painting looking right back at you, Las Meninas. Or as Crystal Wolf once said, it was here. This is where she stood. These stone lions looked at her. Now they no longer have heads. As the ship turned in from the Atlantic, I saw the New York skyline. But when we got to the pier, there was an odd silence, not the usual ecstatic ruckus a ship chock full of broken women recently freed will make. Instead, nobody moved. No one took any steps forward toward disembarking. They all just turned in silence and looked at me. It was my turn this time. How could I not have anticipated this? Instead of going ashore and returning with more images, more forms, I was a broken body who would be getting off and not coming back. I was the one who had been rescued. And then, quite simply, it was the present. Suddenly, I was walking up the East River towards Chinatown. Suddenly, my son was still asleep in his bed. Suddenly, I was making him oatmeal before school. Suddenly, I was sitting on the subway going to the hospital where I worked. It was done. A whole ship of them, an invisible ancient ship of black women. A ship upon which I had lived for thousands of years, just like that, gone. I could feel them out there. A massive ship of broken clay figurines canvas, millions of women named untitled, hundreds of thousands of serving girls, women who could never sit, so many arms filled with baskets and bowls, bent over in their perpetual service, thousands of little Venus figurines, women in petticoats bleeding, women in paras- with parasols, women with the heads of lions or deer, someone wearing a fabulous polyester suit, someone running for presidents, her fingers opened in peace, someone walking alone down a street, stopping to stare into a window on a Sunday morning, the show was an arc, and all of them were singing and cackling. All I could think of in that moment was of Whitman's Birds of Passage. Quote, raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh pioneers. And then Bob Kaufman's lines. All those ships that never sailed, the ones with their sea cocks open, that were scuttled in their stalls, today I bring them back, huge and transitory, and let them sail forever. For some poets, for me, writing is an archaeological act, an archaeological practice without landscape or time. We stand here floating on the air with you. We ask you to imagine with us that what we see is true. We want you to agree to the lie that there is a floor, when we all, each of us, know quite well, very well, that there has never been any such thing as a floor. We pretend together anyway. A writer does not wish to lecture you about the past. We want to take you there instead, which is to say we want your company. The most sincere poets want to hold your hand because, like you, we are also afraid of what we will find, some human horror too heinous to accept alone. And the opposite is also true. We are terrified of finding finally that beauty that is overwhelming simply because in the middle of all these hells, she actually exists. A hidden lapis amulet to ward off death. I write because life is lonely and I want you there. I write because all I want is you here with me, stepping down into the countless pages of the earth with a small brush in my hand, a lantern in yours, that sound of your footfall in the dirt steps behind me. Maybe you'll caress my shoulder just to signal a hello, just to say you're proud. You don't know what of exactly, perhaps the simple fact that somehow mammals are still here fashioning useful objects out of simple elements. Maybe you'll pull an apple from your bag and hand it to me. There is a disease the French call mal de debarquement. In English, it is called disembarkment sickness or land sickness, an illness one feels after ending a prolonged voyage at sea. After the trip has ended, one still feels the ocean rocking beneath one's feet. The whole room sways as if the house were floating atop an ocean. You get seasick while sleeping in the suburbs. You never stop hearing the ship's bell, quietly but symphonically ringing the hours of your watch. There is no cure. Sometimes the only remedy is to get back on a boat, to go back to sea, which is to say some part of me remains tied to her mast. Still, how like love art can be. Art stands there before you, full of caresses, but at a distance. As when that hand I have watched for years, studying every single line, is finally in the same room, reaching toward mine. I do not think of the person to whom the hand belongs. Instead, all I can feel is beauty. At a dinner party, as I dip something into a bowl, just your sly sly glance from the far end of the table makes me think of that ship in Yemen pulling into mocha during 1760. The trade, the horses, the inventory, a pen and ink drawing of a man in a brocade floral gown holding a long, thin brass pipe inlaid with mother of pearl smoking. Or while making love, the pleasure so visual, I am standing in a temple, simultaneously bending over to pick up a Venus figurine at my feet. Like art, I am only attempting. Like art, I don't know how to let love near. Like art, your mouth leaning into mine is too much, be still. I want to say, please, just be still, look. But that isn't the entire truth. It would be most revealing to say, I am afraid. But what I am most frightened to say is, please, Sit here. Read to me. Thank you.
0: This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.